Law Focus Podcast. Bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. It's Vow FM 88.1 and welcome to Law Focus, the show with the staunch focus on the law. The name is Basil Sharenda, your guardian of the law for the evening, delivering your legal rights. It's Freedom Month, Law Focus listener. It is important to reflect on what it means to lose one's freedom. In 1992, at the tail end of apartheid, two men found themselves at the wrong place at the wrong time and they were arrested. In 1993, they were convicted on a charge of murder of a policeman, robbery, attempted murder under the doctrine of common purpose. These two men are Tsukolomukwena and Fusimufuke. The doctrine of common purpose was applied to the extent that they were in active association with the ANC self-defense unit that killed the white policeman. The only evidence the High Court in Bloemfontein had was a statement of a man called Tabo Mutawung, who later on admitted before he passed on that he was paid by the government to give the testimony. Now, in 1998, Fusimu Fukeng and Tsukula were given a chance to go before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, to admit to killing of this white man. And then they would, be, they would have been granted amnesty. But they refused. They stuck to their integrity, they stuck to their truth, and they said, we didn't commit this crime. And therefore, as a result, they didn't qualify for amnesty, and they were sent back to jail. And some of the other members of the, of the ANC unit uh, re- received amnesty. Whereas uh, Fusi and Tsukolo continued to serve a 19-year sentence for a crime that they did not commit. Currently, these two gentlemen with the Vest Justice Project, uh, they are working together with... Um, one ordered Hilden Hayes uh, from uh, Weber Wenzel uh, to launch a, a presidential pardon under Section 327 of the Criminal Procedure Act. Now, what that entails is that they are applying to the Minister of Justice to get a pardon, uh, showing that there is new evidence that has come to light, which m- means that the appeal has to be set aside. Now, law focus listener, it needs to be noted that these people have been quite relentless. These two gentlemen have stood in strength. They've applied to the National Prosecuting Authority. They've applied to several ministers for the past 20 years to no avail. And that will be the exclusive for this evening. Please join us as we speak to uh, Ruth Hopkins from the Vest Justice Project. And we also speak to Fusimu Fukeng, who is one of the wrongfully convicted. We also speak to Odette Heldenes, who is going to be the lawyer who will be bringing the application before the, before the High Court. This is still Law Focus, and we are looking into this exclusive, into the wrongful arrest of Mr. Fusimu Fukeng. Please still stay tuned as we get into the show. Law Focus, point of information. Welcome back to Law Focus, the show with the staunch focus on the law. Uh, on the line, we have Mr. Fusim Fukeng. Uh, you will be reminded that Mr. Fusim Fukeng was actually arrested in 1992, convicted in 1993 by the Bloemfontein High Court um, for a crime of murder, robbery, and attempted murder. And he was give, given life imprisonment along with Mr. Um, Mr. Tolo. Mugwena. But we are going to speak to Mr. Fusimu Fukeng about the life, um, his life in prison and when he got convicted, his parole and what is happening currently. Mr. Fusi, welcome to the show. Uh, good afternoon, my brother. Um, we, yes. we, are, we are talking about your presidential pardon and I think most of our listeners are actually quite interested in getting to know what um, you, got, you are going through along with the Vest Justice Project and your lawyers at the Weber Wenzel. Um, can you please take us through what happened in 1992 
um, when it all started? Okay, it was on the 2nd of April 1992 when my brother-in-law arrived to my place. He was accompanied by other seven men. They were all coming from a place called Polar Park. Polar Park uh, used to be a squatter camp in Togoza. Mm. All of them were members of the self-defense units of the African Cong- the African National Congress mm. at that time. It happened that uh, when they were hanging around during the day, uh, later on, they moved out. My brother-in-law told me that they are they were on their way to Guadalupe Natal. They were in fact escorting their weapons to Guadalupe Natal. Mm. After leaving my place, around past five, there were police cars all over the, the township, including helicopters. Everybody in the township was surprised as to what was happening there. Mm. Uh, he arrived again after the incident of helicopters aeroplanes. He came to my place again asking whether the guys that he arrived earlier with didn't come to my place. And I said no. And then I, I asked him, I asked him why are you asking about this? Because you you have already told me that you are leaving for Kwazulu town. He said unfortunately on the way they were confronted by police. And according to the way they operate, they are not supposed to give the weapons to the police. So there was this shootout between themselves and the police. Unfortunately, mm. one policeman died at the scene, the other one was paralyzed. And they didn't come to an agreement as to whether they are proceeding with their agenda to Guadalupe or not, because their commander insisted to them that they should go on, whereas my brother-in-law and the other two, I gave the idea of proceeding with the trip to Guadalupe town. Then the three decided to go back to the town city. That's where he arrived at my place and asked me whether the guys that he accompanied him did he arrive to my place. Mm. And uh, on that very same day, my brother, my biological brother, arrived from work. I, I, I explained to him as to what happened during the day. And uh, after a few seconds, my brother-in-law knocked at the door again, asking the same question as to whether the guys arrived with earlier on. Did he arrive? I said, no, he did not arrive. He said, no, he wanted to be there just to wait for them. In case they arrived, then they found the getaway. As they will have, uh, there was this gun that was between themselves and the police. Mm. So he was sure that the guys were not going to be arrested because they were highly trained. But unfortunately, around 10 o'clock, I heard over the news that there were two guys who were arrested, two members of the MK, who were arrested in the township. Mm. They are still looking, the police are still looking for others. Uh, on that day, around mid- midnight, there was this big bang at the door, the police kicked it to the door. We tried to open the door. Unfortunately, the door was already broken. Mm. And when I advanced to the door, I took a knife and I tried to open and the door was opened and was kicked by the police. When they came into the house, we started by pointing to me at my brother-in-law, saying in Africa, they started assaulting him. We first throughout the house, 
and they took the three of us to the police station. Mm. That was on the second of April. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, and then from there you were arrested, and then and then you were taken to the police station. I need to understand what happened with Mr. Colin Crenshaw, who was uh, the head of security police at the time. Yes, there was this head of the special branch at that time, with Robert Shaw, who assaulted me uh, on the following day. He was in charge of the whole unit of the special branch. Mm. Uh, as we were in the cells that night or till the morning, the next day, the 3rd of April, we were taken to the to various uh, police offices there individually. We were asked questions, the three of us. And it happened that I explained to the police that my brother, my biological brother, was at work. Yeah. At the time, my brother and the rest of the guys were with me in the house. And uh, his employer decided to bring her own lawyer so that my brother can be freed, and he was freed. Mm. I explained to the police that I've got nothing to do with these guys except one guy that I know, my brother-in-law, and I was not part of, of the guys who were escorting guns. They didn't believe me. Then Robert Shaw started slapping at me at my face. Mm. saying that I'm also a trained member of the MK because in 1983, I didn't attend school simply because I was receiving uh, military training somewhere outside the country. And it's not like that. It is because during that day, that year, I moved from Tokoza and came back to study here in Bethlehem at home. And it was later discovered that uh, the other two who were heading to Guajimatan were killed along the way, and the other two managed to escape. Even today, they are aware about that thing, not yet. Still unknown. And, and so, at, uh, in, according to my understanding, in, in Bloemfontein at the High Court, there was only a single witness. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, all in all, I think there were about more than 57 witnesses, but there was this only one in 55 against, against me and Sokolo. And Sokolo. And, so, and I mean, his testimony was, was very shaky. unreliable. Mm. But fortunately, the apartheid court relied on that single witness uh, evidence, and uh, we were sentenced to life and 18 years imprisonment. I mean, our, our law focus. Yeah, you know, Mister uh, Mister Mufuking, our law focus listeners are actually interested in your in your relentless and 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 the and the way you because at, you were at the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, yes. and you yes. had a chance of just saying yes, we did it, and you would have gotten amnesty, if I understand correctly, but you still said no, yes, we didn't do we it. Appeared, we appeared. I think it was uh, in 1998 when we appeared before the TRC hearing in Melbourne. Mm. But the difficulty with me was that to say to the committee that I killed the policeman or I shot, I, I, I shot the policeman, even though I don't know the place where the police were shot. Mm. It's here in Bethlehem, but I'm not quite, I, I was not aware as to where. And again, it was very difficult for me to say I killed a person, whereas I did not. I, I think if I accepted that I killed 
people, people that I don't know. I was not even having knowledge as to how to shoot. Mm. So for me, it was very difficult to say because as we are going to be freed, like you are saying, by the TRC administration, the people here outside were going to judge me, I think, for the rest of my life. Yes, I understand that. I'm one of the killers. Not like that. I mean, you, you wrote to the National Prosecuting Authority, you, write, you wrote to the South, South African Human Rights Commission, you wrote to various presidents, you wrote to ministers, and then finally you wrote to the Vest Justice Project. I mean, what kept this, this hope? Like, I need to understand what was going on in your mind. I was going very difficult times, I must say, but the hope I kept my light burning that one day, if the story can reach the ears that are going to listen, my problem will be attended to. So there was this, uh, I was the light burning inside me that when I can get maybe the strong media attention about this, there will be a willing ear to listen to my story. That's what kept me going all, all the years. And you never gave up? No, I didn't do that at all. And so, and so, you in 2012 you got parole, um, if I understand correctly, and 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 so after your parole you tried to 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 garner a bit of life and you tried to, and I mean so you have a life you have you have a child, you have a wife, and and how is how, how has life been in the aftermath? You know, after all this predicament, it was very difficult to adjust. You can imagine after you spent so much, 19 years in prison, suddenly you come out, there are people, your families. I mean, I lost my mother, my father, and my brother while I was in prison. Mm. And I was not even given a chance to come and bury them at all. And uh, I was able to get uh, employed here at the local municipality, but to adjust to the outside life, it was very difficult. Mm. Seeing that uh, my friends, those I grew up, they have advanced in their lives, and, and, and I'm still lagging behind. Mm. Even the relationship between the, the relatives, it wasn't that much strong because I was away from, from them for quite a long time. And others were born while I was in prison. They were, they were only told about their relatives who was in prison, but they didn't know who that person. So you can imagine it was very difficult. Yeah, speaking about integrating in society, I understand that you are now a carpenter. It, it, yes. must, it must be a quite an interesting career, I imagine. In fact, I'm enjoying my work at, at all times. Yeah. Very exciting, even though I'm still making the high with my own life. But, like, I believe that there is somewhere there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I'll be able to get through. Uh, Mr. Mufuking, uh, we, we wish you all the success in the world and we hope that uh, your case goes well and finally the truth will come to light uh, but uh, our conversation has to come to an end right there and we will continue speaking here on Law Focus about your matter that was Mr. Fusi Mufukeng uh, putting a presidential pardon under section 300, 327 of the Criminal Procedure Act before the President 
Thank you, Mr. Fusimu Fukeng. Thank you for speaking to us. My pleasure. Law Focus, handing you your rights. Welcome back to Law Focus. Uh, we are speaking with... Um, Ms. Ruth Hopkins from the Vest Justice Project. She's an investigative journalist and also a lecturer here at VIRT. Uh, the work that she's been doing has been surrounding wrongful convictions and any other injustices uh, in the prison system. Um, she's the one who received the case of Mr. Fusimu Fukeng and Tsukulomukwena. And she's been following it up, and I think for a good uh, six years. She's going to take us through that uh, just now. Ms. Hopkins, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I mean, we need to first start by commending the hard work that you do. <laughs> as we've, we have but I mean this particular case this is an, this has been quite an interesting case you you have pursued like you you gave you gave the word justice invest justice project a meaning thank you I mean thank you. I mean <laughs> please tell us about Fusimu Fuking and sure. Tokolo I mean yeah yeah so so as you said I'm an investigative journalist working at the Vitz Justice Project and I started in February 2012 so that's mm. six years ago yeah. um, and when I started this case was handed to me so the 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 Vitz Justice Project it was actually the very first case the Vitz Justice Project took uh, at that time um, I think it was 2009, the journalist Jacques Beau, who you might know from The President's Keepers, that book that just came out. Yeah. So he, he was in my position. He was an investigative journalist. And he, uh, Fusi wrote wrote to him, wrote to the Witsjustice Project, and Jacques Beau wrote the very first article about uh, Fusi and Tokolo. Uh, he, he was only with the Vitz Justice Project for four months. He was then, his successor was Jeremy Gordon, who also worked on this case and helped the guys uh, with the, they were released, right, in 2011 after spending 19 years in jail, but they were released on early parole. parole yeah. So Jeremy kind of helped sort of orchestrate that. And then, so when I started in 2012, Fusi and Tokolo were free, you know, they were outside um, and they, they wanted to rectify the wrong that had been done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I helped them, uh, first of all, um, get a lawyer, a pro bono lawyer to represent them. Uh, and we found lawyers at the law firm Webevensel who were willing to do this. Um, and then we looked at uh, the law and which you know avenue was open to them uh, because they basically exhausted all their legal remedies, which means they had appealed and appealed and appealed and it had been turned mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. And so I won't talk too much about 327 of the Criminal Procedure Act because you're also interviewing Odette Geldenhuis, who is yes, way more knowledgeable than I am on, the, on, on that provision. But then, so we found out that the presidential pardon application based on the Criminal Procedure Act was the best avenue because it involves... There's also a presidential pardon based on the Constitution, but that is just the president saying, we forgive you, you know. That's it. Yeah. And it's so important for Fusi and Tokolo that they never committed a crime. They're innocent. Their names have been blemished. They want, you know, they want to restore their dignity. They want to restore their names. They want to restore their... Um, just their innocence, basically, because mm. they have a criminal record. They want to clear their name, basically. They yeah. want to clear their name. So it's very important for them that that happens. So we found the right legal avenue. We found them lawyers, and then it took the lawyers five years. 
to compile the petition, which drove me, I can tell you, up the wall. Because <laughs> um, uh, I was just so impatient and five years was way too long. Anyways, they managed to, to submit it and they submitted the presidential pardon petition in July last year with the Department of Justice. And since then, again, it's been eerily silent uh, mm. on the side of the Department of Justice. So again, it's, it's kind of driving me up the wall because Fusi and Tokola, they've... They're, they're the one, because I work on a lot of wrongful conviction cases, they're the one case where I can say, I don't know if they're like, I know them professionally or they're my friends. You know, I've become, I've, I've met their families, they've come to my house, they've met my friends and family and, you know, we, we know each other and, and I care a lot about them. Like it's that one case whereby my professionalism maybe at, at some point in time is, is, I wouldn't say compromise, but, um, yeah, I really, really hope that they get what they deserve. Because I've, I've been, you were mentioning a journey before. Like, I've been on this journey with them only for six years. They've been on this journey for 25 years. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I, it's it's one of those cases that I, I just really, I mean, I care about all my work, but I really, really care about this case and I about mean, these I men. Mean, I mean, they wrote to the NPA, they wrote to the Human Rights Commission, they wrote to presidents, they wrote to ministers, and they wrote to you. What made you believe them? Well, so it wasn't it wasn't exactly me. Remember, it was Jacques Poe. So it was the Vitz Justice Project in two thousand and nine. But mm. you know, the case was handed to me. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and what convinced me, like a hundred percent, is that these guys came before the TRC in nineteen ninety eight. Nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, and they could have said, "Oh, we're so sorry. You know, we confess. We're part of the SDU." They could have. You know, they could have taken that line, but they stood by their principles and said, we have nothing to confess. We're innocent. And I think that to me is, even though it doesn't present any evidence, it doesn't mm -hmm. exonerate them, it doesn't incriminate them, but it to me, it, it, it represents truth. You know what I mean? Otherwise, you wouldn't say that if if that if that wasn't the case you know and mm. and and ironically the guys who actually did kill the police officer only spent i think six years in jail and have no criminal record and the guys who didn't do anything wrong spent 19 years in jail and have a criminal record so it's kind of a topsy-turvy world that doesn't make sense so that that's what really convinced me in addition to there being barely any evidence yeah I mean, I mean, yeah, especially on evidence, they, they only had a single witness, yeah. I mean, on, the, on that case, and, and the witness later on confessed, um, according to your article, confessed that they, they, they were paid to, to say this. I'm trying to understand what happened on appeal, and I was hoping you could assist us on that. What happened on appeal that the appeal failed? It's actually something I'm not too knowledgeable about. I think they applied for leave to appeal and it was dismissed. But I think you should ask Odette that. She's the lawyer. She will. She she will. Know. <laughs> okay. Okay. But uh, as far as I remember, I think they applied for leave to appeal and it was dismissed. It was they they were just like, no, this was the correct judgment. Mm, okay. Uh, no, that's interesting. And I mean, tell us about about their their according to how you you've been introduced to them, their life after parole. Um. How has it improved? Has it improved or? Well, so, like I said just now, like this this case also really drives me crazy at times because, 
Uh, Fusi and Tokolo, they came out on early parole in 2011, and this was thanks to a campaign, you could say, that the, not only the Vits Justice Project was involved in, but also the local community, the local churches, the local ANC, um, they all put pressure on, um, on the authorities to let these guys out, right? Um, and at the time when they came out, uh, it was, ironically, also, it was on the same date that they were arrested, on the 2nd of April, but now in 2011, there was a big meeting organized uh, in a football stadium in Bethlehem, where these guys live, right? And so all the, like, local ANC dignitaries, among them Tabo Magnoni, for example, who uh, used to be the mayor of Bloemfontein, he was the deputy chair... ANC chair of the Free State. He's like, he's quite high up in the Free State ANC. He publicly promised to help these guys find a job uh, and also to help them uh, get house, like to get to, for the municipality to give them a plot of land where, mm. and he promised he would help them with the building materials, right? And everyone else who was there, it was all these local ANC guys, right? They were all like applauding them like they were like Mandela had been released right mm -hmm. and up till now I mean they do have a job that 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 was that promise was followed up on so Tokolo works as a welder um, at the municipality and uh, Fusi uh, started as a carpenter but he is now if I'm not mistaken a, something called a special worksman so he's he's been promoted several times um, and that's great, but they still don't have houses. They still, they, they, I think they've just signed the document for the plot of land. But I find that, you know, that like the, because basically these guys are collateral damage of the ANC freedom struggle. Mm. You know, they were caught up in, in, the, in the freedom struggle at the wrong place at the wrong time. And it messed up their lives. And I, f I personally strongly feel that it is, it is the ANC that should stick his neck out and say, look, these guys got caught up in our... Freedom struggle, you know, um, their lives have been ruined. We need to rectify this and because they were basically sentenced by the apartheid regime, right? Well, mm. not but by a judge, but a judge that was part of the apartheid society. So I strongly feel the ANC, it's really their responsibility. And they've just ignored these guys. And um, I try and kind of, you know, I try and speak to Tawa Magnoni. I try to convince him to help them. And it's just, it's, it's, a, it, it's a real struggle, you mm. know, because there's just this pervasive indifference to their fate. Um, and so, you know, they still don't have, they still don't have the, the building materials that were promised. Mm. And Tokolo uh, is actually, he's suffered more, I think, since he's been released than, than, than Fusi. And he's working as a welder, and he's not just any welder, he's extremely talented. Um, and in Bethlehem, he built this huge struct, uh, structure. It's literally like 150 by 250 meters, and there's netting spanned over it, and there's like a nursery underneath it. Interesting. Yeah, and he built it all by himself. It was, it was a typical South African story. There was a tender put out. Some company took the money of the tender, but then ran off with the money. Yeah. And then they said, oh, Tukolo, can't you do it? And he, he built it single-handedly, the whole thing. And he's still working at the level of welder. Uh, and he's not been, he's not like Fusi been promoted, you know what yeah. I mean? And this guy is now 57. His pension is coming up. He's got a 19-year gap in his pension, mm. you know. So I feel, you know, there's these these guys to a certain extent have been left out in the cold and are just being ignored. And they're struggling to reintegrate, basically. 
Yeah, I think they they need. I think because of what has been done to them, they need a bit more support. You know what I mean? Because they're not any 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 person. You know, they've they, they, their lives have been dramatically affected in a very negative way. I mean, mm. I think Fusi was just telling you that he lost his mother, father, and brother mm. during his incarceration. They all died, and he was not allowed to go to the funeral. Tokolo, I think, also lost his mother yeah. and father and yeah. was not allowed to go to the funeral. They've not they've not built up a career. They've not built up a house and a family. I mean, they do have families, but they've not had that opportunity, you know? Their best years were taken from them. And and it, I find it just... It's very frustrating to to work on this case and to everywhere I turn to, there's there's indifference. I mean, uh, Colin Robert Shaw. Yeah. Um, tell us about his personality and how he approached this case. It's interesting the way you write about it in your in your article. Yeah. So um, how I ended up meeting uh, meeting him, Mr. Robert Shaw, was. Um, I was I was visiting Fusi and Tokolo and we were parked outside a kind of the shopping center in 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 the middle of Bethlehem. And Fusi says, "See that cash and carry over there? That's that's where Robert Shaw uh, is currently a manager or he's either a manager or he owns the whole thing, right?" Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, "Oh, that's interesting. Have you ever met him?" And he said, "No, I I I haven't had the nerve to do it. I always wanted someone to come with me." So I said, "Well, here I am. Let's go." And so uh, Fuzi and Tukola and myself, we just went up to the cash and carry, knocked on the door. Um, and, you know, if you've read the article, that basically the whole conversation is, is reflected in, mm. in, in the article. He completely um, denies it. And he's an interesting character because uh, he was, at the time, the head of the security branch in Bethlehem. Mm. He ordered the arrest. He's the only person who hit Fusi. I think he also mentioned that in the in the interview with you. Um, and I was digging into his background and then uh, found out that he had actually also appeared before the GRC. Not in this case, uh, but in a different case of, I think, three or four... Um, There's DU members and he speaks about how he thought that it was a war against the ANC. And, and so his yeah. job was to stop the ANC from doing what they wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm not sure they were SDU members, but they were part of the armed struggle of the ANC, okay. and, he, and he disappeared them in Lesotho. Yeah, meaning he probably I don't know what he did to them, but um, so he was deeply entrenched in apartheid era structures and in the philosophy of it. And mm. Fusi and Tokolo and myself also to a certain extent, I don't feel much has changed in his head. I get what you say. Yeah, and I also find it just. Uh, quite shocking, you know, that here we are in Bethlehem, here's a guy who worked for the security branch, he he probably tortured and killed people and or disappeared them, you know, and here are two guys who are wrongfully convicted. The two guys who are wrongly, wrongfully convicted are struggling, you know, they're str- especially Sokolo mm. is struggling. Uh, and here's Robert Shaw, and he's like comfortably middle class, he has a big house, he runs a shop, you know, he's doing really well, and I'm like, that that also is just not right, you know. No. This something didn't wasn't dealt with. Mm, okay, I mean, I don't want to get deeper into it about the effect of TRC mm. and how uh, how the, how how South Africans look at it. I don't know how 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 Black Pan Africanists view it and see see it as a sham, you know. Yeah.
but I mean, I thank you for the interview. Um, <laughs> uh, that was um, uh, Mr. Ruth Hopkins uh, from the Vest Justice Project giving us the blow by blow on Fusimufukeng and Sokolomukwena. Thank you for your contribution this evening. Thank you. Listening to Law Focus? Connect with VowFam88.1 on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. Law Focus. Point, point of information. Welcome back to Law Focus, and you're still sitting with Basil Shirinda here, and we are discussing the law. We On the line, we have Miss Odette Geldenais from Weber Wenzel, and she's a partner at the pro bono practice um, at the firm. Uh, her expertise is broadly in the field of public interest law and an overarching career interest in access to justice. And she's the one who's handling the case that which uh, Mr. Fusimofu King um, the case that regards Mr. Fusimufu King's wrongful arrest. Uh, Miss Odette, welcome. Hi, good afternoon. How are you, ma'am? Good, thanks yourself. Uh, I, we, are, we are doing fine here in Law Focus and our listeners. I mean, um, I understand that you are, you are looking into a judicial review or rather a petition for, for, for a pardon for, for Mr. Fusimufu King and, and Mr. Tokolo Mukwin. Uh, what does that entail, Miss? Um, so, what the, the the case at the moment is what's called um, a, um, an, an application for pardon, and one uses um, the Criminal Procedure Act for that. And so, what, what the what the law provides for is it says that if after a criminal case. Um, has been completed and one then needs to and, 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 and there's been a conviction and the, 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 the guilty parties or the, those people, the parties have been found guilty um, now on a position where they want to, to, to challenge the conviction, they can use this section of the, of the Criminal Procedure Act if if, if two things have happened, if one, all the processes available to them have been exhausted, and two, if new evidence have come to light, then one can um, um, make an application of pardon basically to the president, and the president then has the powers to do three things. Either, and, and, and so before that final decision is taken, maybe let me also just explain the matter. Then the matter then goes back to court. The matter then goes back to court and, and back to the prosecutors who prosecuted the case originally. Um, they then consider this new evidence and then makes a recommendation to the president. Um, and there can be three outcomes. The one outcome is that there is no change so that the the guilty conviction stands and that the sentences which have been given by the, the original court stand. The other potential outcome is that the guilty conviction stands but that the sentences are changed. And the third outcome is that the guilty uh, conviction is, is overturned. So that is that is the process that that uh, we are assisting uh, Mr. Morfokeng and Mr. McQueen with at the moment. So uh, on 
28th July 2017, we filed this, what is called the Section 327 application um, with the Office of um, the Minister of Justice, which is the place we want us to file such an application. So it's a very, it's a very um, detailed application. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, the, the number of page of uh, pages of the application came to, you know, with all the attachments to it, came to close on 3,000 pages um, because it also included the entire transcript of the criminal trial which happened in 1992, yes. which in itself is about 2,000-odd pages. So since then, we have, on about a, a four-weekly or six-weekly basis, we have written to the Department of Justice to inquire about the progress, and um, the, the response that we have received from the department is that the application is being referred to the National Prosecuting Authority for um, for them to study the application and to to give their input. So th that is where we're standing at the moment. So why cannot why cannot you you, you proceed on an appeal rather than um, a pattern? So. In terms of, in, as, as, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, we are using this section because all the other avenues have already been exhausted. So Mr. M Mr. McQuenna and Mr. Morfoking, they have, they, have, they have already launched an appeal and that, and that was unsuccessful. They also... Um, attempted to appeal to, so, so the initial appeal was to the to the Bloemfontein High Court, which had heard the initial case. Um, that was unsuccessful, and then they um, ad attempted to appeal to the Supreme Court of Appeal in in um, which is also in Bloemfontein, but it's it's you know it's the it's the it's the higher court, and that was also unsuccessful. And so what would be different as well from a judicial review? There isn't something like a, a judicial review that's possible in, um, when it comes to criminal cases. A judicial review is when a judge reviews a decision which had been taken by a non-legal person. So um, um, let's uh, take an example which is uh, let's take you you in the you in the educational context now. So let's say a decision that was taken. That that would be an administrative review. Uh, I think that's the direction you're taking. Um, an administrative review is another word for saying a review of a decision taken by an administ by an administrator uh, by an, or that's been taken in an by a decision that was made. In an, in an administrative context. Okay, so the, um, question, the question is, Ms. Khaldanese, that so if you have a judgment, for example, and so you want to take that judgment to the next level, but you're not appealing the decision, you're only reviewing it on the basis that certain so, evidence so, was not so, taken so, into account. So, so um, there are different grounds for appeal 
um, and different grounds for review. So an appeal in law one does um, uh, on on the facts. So when one when when if a party feels that a judge that the judge um, didn't consider all the facts or considered the facts incorrectly, then the way they challenge that decision is to appeal against the decision. If, if however, the party who is unhappy with a, dis- a decision of a judge is unhappy on the basis of the, the process that the judge used or that they feel that the judge went outside of his or her powers. So, for example, a magistrate has got very, very limited powers. They've only got powers given to them by the Magistrates Court Act. So then that is then the basis for reviewing Mm. the magistrate's decision. So uh, So it's not as if one can choose between uh, an appeal and a review uh, as if those two are interchangeable. Okay, so because the question that I wanted to ask was, so in the event that, uh, for example, in in this case, there was only a single, um, um, there was a single witness, and so a cautionary rule should have been applied. So if one were to review it on that basis, um, would that be possible? But as you said, that all avenues were were exhausted, and I think that was the point that I was making. But also looking at how Mr. Mufugeng is quite hopeful of this matter, um, I think that that we need to start by commending the hard work that which you have done at Weber Vinsel. And I think moving forward, uh, many more should hope for your assistance. Am I correct? If, if, they, if there are other people who need a similar assistance, we are always willing to, to consult with people and, and you know, look at particularly you know, what the cases involve. Um, you know, as as you as you probably know, each case has to be um, sort of weighed up in terms of 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 the facts and the particular circumstance of each case. Yeah, I mean, all the best, uh, Miss 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 Odet uh, That is a partner in the pro bono practice at Weber Vinsel. Thank you for your contribution this evening. No, thank you very much for um, letting me, uh, you know, give you some some context to this case. We we, we we are quite thankful, and we hope we hope for your success. Thank you very much. Listening to Law Focus, connect with Valfam eighty eight point one on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. Law Focus, point point of information. Welcome back to Law Focus, and I'm still your guardian of the law for the evening. Uh, unfortunately, we, our conversation has not only come to an end, but has reached a point of reflection. Law Focus listener, as we always tell you every week, there is a time to think about the current state of the law. Are we delivering justice or not? This evening, we spoke about wrongful arrest. We spoke about the presidential pardon of a man called Fusimufu King and another man called Tsokolo Mugwena. These two gentlemen have brought an, an application for presidential pardon um, through the Vest Justice Project. Ms. Ruth Hopkins has been working with them for the past six years, and she recounts her experiences with us. Uh, and one of the things that she notes very well is that she has always noted that people who had a chance to speak at the TRC to say that we have committed this crime and still did not, that in itself showed that there was an element of truth in their case. 
we spoke to Mr. Fusimo Fukeng and he tells us uh, his experience throughout the whole entire journey, the TRC. He tells us about his life in, in prison. He tells us about his life after prison and, and how he tries to reintegrate into society. He tells us about how he has hope into this matter and how he remained hopeful throughout all the applications that he has made to the National Prosecuting Authority and all the other authorities that he had a chance to apply to. We also spoke to Ms. Odette Heldenhays, and he ex- she, ex- she explained to us how she's launching the application with the High Court and, and how she's assessed the case and how the processes apply in presidential pardon. And she highlighted that there was new evidence in this particular case uh, for, uh, for a presidential pardon. Law Focus listener, Law Focus this week has brought a highlight into wrongful arrest and now is the time for you to reflect and have your views as well. I honestly think that their case will succeed and I wish them all the best. Please tweet me at VowFM with the hashtag LawFocus. Uh, for my producer, Ms. Bulali Diakopu, from me, Basil Sharinda, it's law and it's serious. Good evening. Listening to Law Focus? Connect with VowFM88.1 on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. Law Focus on VowFM88.1. Point of Information. Law Focus Podcast.